0: Welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Essen Butt, Associate Professor of International Relations at George Mason University. Essen, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me, John.
0: You've done a lot of work on Pakistan, and that's what I want to ask you about first. Uh, the country has hit some hard times lately. It's been experiencing environmental crisis, economic crisis, there's been flooding and food shortages and a refugee problem from neighboring Afghanistan. Changes in leadership. Can you just bring us up to speed? Sort of talk us through what's been going on there now.
1: Well, I think uh, as you as you're saying, it's really a confluence of maybe two or three huge crises: a political crisis, uh, a climate crisis, and an economic crisis. Um, they're all related to one another, obviously, uh, but maybe it'll be more useful to sort of uh, treat them separately analytically. Um, The economic crisis is really one about debt. Uh, Pakistan owes a lot of money to uh, donors. It owes a lot of money to China. For instance, Uh, overall, Pakistan's debt stands at roughly $75 billion. Um, And the servicing of that debt, forget the debt itself, just the interest payments on that debt. sort of stretch the Pakistani state uh, beyond its capabilities. So Pakistan is in this constant sort of state of needing external donors, whether it's Gulf Arab states, whether it's China, whether it's the US, whether it's the IMF, um, It's a sort of constant state of needing money from abroad, and then and that, that, that leads to uh, you know all sorts of demands and promises that maybe the Pakistani state is either unwilling or unable to uh, execute so there's a huge economic crisis uh that you know is still very much ongoing pakistan is uh, in talks with the imf to to receive more money pakistan just received pledges uh, which is not actually delivered money but certainly pledges from a bunch of gulf arab states uh, to the tunes of billions of dollars uh but this is all very much kicking the can down the road uh until there are uh sustainable and Uh, wholehearted uh, reforms in the economy, Uh, everything to do with the exchange rate, to how we educate our public, to um, taxes and spending, uh, to fuel subsidies, to electricity subsidies. I mean, there's just a whole uh, revamping that needs to happen in the Pakistani economy. And there's really no elected government, frankly, that has the wherewithal or the political capital to, to, to deliver on those reforms. So it's sort of a sort of a vicious cycle uh the political crisis uh is really a, sort of um one that we've seen for a long time or ser- certainly manifestations of, of a similar cycle uh, maybe the players change maybe the names change but a lot of the cycle looks awfully familiar uh and the cycle is this that the military is either in direct control of the country or would like to be in indirect control of the country uh, Direct control of the country follows coups. Pakistan's had four of them historically, but uh, the last one was more than 20 years ago. And many would argue that coups have gone out of fashion almost. And so the Pakistani military has gotten much better uh, at pulling the strings from behind uh, behind the scenes a little bit, while still having overwhelming influence on everything from elections to court cases to you know who goes to jail and who doesn't. Um, and so, uh, in the spring of last year, in 2022, uh, this is exactly what happened. Where the Pakistani military would have chosen Imran Khan in the early 2010s uh, as this sort of protege uh, to to neutralize other domestic enemies that they have. Uh, you know that relationship was fine in the late 2010s uh, when elections had to be won or rigged, rather I should say, uh, and opponents had to be neutralized, but. As was very predictable and as was predicted by a lot of folks, uh, as soon as you hit a bump in the road, these sort of marriages of convenience between the military and the civilians doing their bidding uh, can break down. They can break down on substance, on certain policy issues, like, hey, what do we do about the U.S. relationship? What do we do about the rise of the Taliban? But they also break down on very predictable sort of personality clashes, clashes over power, um, which is exactly what happened, right? Uh, The military thought that they could uh, corral Imran Khan, but Imran Khan has a is not the type of politician to be corralled. He has a huge ego. He has a lot of power. He has a lot of backing. He has a lot of support. And so, the idea that they sort of put him in a box and control him, I think, was a bit fanciful. Uh, and sure enough, sort of that blew up in their face, right? So they had a the military and Imran Khan had a huge disagreement over. Again, the substance was relatively narrow, right? The substance was who's going to be the next army chief, who's going to be the next intelligence chief, but. The, the substance was reflecting a larger, a larger problem, which is like how do we, like, where do we go from here? Does Imran Khan stay in power? If so, then we need his people in the intelligence agencies, or is Imran Khan going to be challenged? If so, then there's going to be a so-called neutral party as an army chief or intelligence chief, and so, um, really, this was a political crisis between the military and the civilian leader, and predictably, the civilian leader lost, and so the parties that were against the military for the last five years are now have now been brought in by the military or at least been sort of at least the military stepped out of their way as they came to power um, so that's the political crisis is sort of Imran Khan losing power and now fighting very hard to come back to power and so sort of, what does that look like do we have elections in the next few months uh, if so does the military step aside or they try and engineer outcomes again even though they just promised that they're not going to do that so that's really the political crisis the climate crisis uh, is also extreme. Uh, the floods last year, uh, you know, cost tens of billions of dollars, uh, thousands of lives, tens of millions of people displaced. Um, and the scary thing is, there is nothing to suggest that this can't or won't happen again very, very soon. Uh, Pakistan and South Asia in general is one of the the hot quote unquote hotspots for climate change. Uh, the UN and other multilateral agencies have identified South Asia as one of the most vulnerable, one of the most vulnerable regions to climate change, uh, both with respect to heat, with respect to uh, water and precipitation, uh, both too much of it, which is flooding, and too little of it, which is drought. Uh, oftentimes the flooding and drought happen in the same provinces, uh, not just in Pakistan, but also in India and Bangladesh. Um, so this is a region uh, very, very vulnerable, and what makes it even more vulnerable is its poverty, uh, and what makes it even more vulnerable is the lack of sort of working institutions. Um, so uh, this has really come to a head all at the same time, and so as you suggest, you know, Pakistan is very much uh, in the crosshairs right now of multiple crises. Some of them are not like the climate crisis is not Pakistan's own doing, right? We Pakistan contributes less than one percent to global emissions, Uh, but the political and economic crisis, uh, very much you could argue, are of its own making, Um, and so that's that's where the country's at right now.
0: I want to follow up on that on that political element that you talked about. You know, it's interesting. The deep state has become uh, a term that's sort of emerged in the U.S. political lexicon very lately. But I remember when it was a it was a word that um, you know experts used to describe, say, Turkey's system or Pakistan's system. and you described a little bit of how it works um, before. But in uh, 2018, you wrote a piece, you co-authored a, an article in the Journal of Strategic Studies that looked at Pakistan's military and intelligence communities and you found that the system has a certain level of professionalism and cohesion and stability to it in the sense that they can manage to maintain relative unity um, and and and. Uh, actually succeed in these political machinations um do you want to talk a little bit about what you found in that paper
1: absolutely uh and i actually do think some of the findings of that paper are if not being drawn into question then certainly uh recent events are shining a different light on them let's put it that way but yeah to go back to the paper the basic uh, that that we co-authored with paul Staneland and and dan nasimullah um the paper basically looked at the internal the internal machinery of the pakistani military and the basic idea was how does this deeply politicized military re- retain cohesion and unity in ways that other deeply politicized militaries such as turkey the one you mentioned or places like thailand uh, for instance uh, don't have uh, you see very few uh, coups from within you see very few so called sort of you know officer coups from within um, of the pakistani military um, and even if there is disagreement among the upper echelon of officers, you very rarely see that come out in the public, um, and so what we were doing in that paper is trying to figure out, hey, why is this Why is this organization so cohesive, and sort of, you know, and one of the arguments that we, we proffered was that it was, in fact, a very professional organization in the sense, professional not in the sense of a Sam Huntington, you know, professional military that stays out of politics, but professional in the sense of what do its internal procedures for recruitment and promotion look like? Uh, these were very much, for the most part, for the most part, I want to emphasize, based on merit, based on seniority, um, and so the Pakistani military doesn't really play games internally when it comes to who rises to the top. Uh, so that that's one sort of answer, and then the other part of the answer is, you know, what happens after retirement, uh, and the Pakistani military. Thanks to its overwhelming power in in domestic politics, has managed to secure for itself some very nice perks and some very nice goodies that maybe maybe military officers in other parts of the world are not especially used to, uh, or if they are used to it, they have to fight for it in the private sector rather than just being handed the stuff as a as a matter of course. So everything from you know board positions in you know cornflake com- like. Companies that make your breakfast cereal, to you know, uh, you know CEO or COO positions in in private security firms, to you know, very handsome, uh, uh, you know, rewards in terms of real estate and land and housing. You know, some of the, you know, the the nicest areas of Karachi and Lahore and Islamabad, you know, are handed over to. To military uh, folks, retired military folks, and very nice houses, and so on. Um, and so that was sort of the second half of the puzzle, right? Like one of the reasons this uh, this this organization can maintain cohesion is because they know good stuff is coming to them if they just wait, right? So you, as long as you retire, you know, in good standing, good stuff is going to happen to you. You're going to get to play golf uh, for very low sums of money. You're going to have a nice house in a nice part of town. Uh, your children are going to go to the US or Canada or UK for education. Uh, so it's a good life. Um, so, so that's really what we were sort of focusing on in that paper is sort of the, the sources of unity and cohesion uh, for this organization. Interestingly, just in the last year and the sort of political crisis I was mentioning between Imran Khan and the military, that is arguably the first time, at least in my experience, that I have started to see a little bit of not much, but a little bit of, uh, you know, a breakdown in unity, maybe, in, um, in the Pakistani military, primarily because of political preferences. The PTI party, Imran Khan's party, is incredibly uh, popular amongst uh, military folks. And th- not, that's, why, that's why they entered into an alliance 10 years ago, is, is the military identified Imran Khan as a like-minded, or certainly is more like-minded uh, to its to its officer corps, as well as his rank and file than most other most other civilian leaders. Um, but thanks to this crisis, uh, one of the things that's happened is that people within the military are attacking the military. Retired folks are attacking the military. They're actually taking the side of Imran Khan, saying this is where our loyalties lie. And so for the first time in literally 75 years, you've seen Military folks criticize the military's role in politics, not on any principled uh, basis or not on the basis of, oh, you know, we're Democrats now and we care about democracy, but purely on the basis of the person you are choosing is not the person we would have chosen. So, so that's sort of something to keep our eye on. But overall, this is a, a remarkably cohesive organization, given the amount of political power it, it exercises.
0: There are tensions between Pakistan and Taliban-led Afghanistan on the issue of the TTP or the Pakistani Taliban. Can you explain the dynamics of these relationships and, you know, what the disagreement is about?
1: Yeah, it's very much a case of you know be careful what you ask for or be careful what you wish for. Uh for the best part of 20 years as you know in this city in Washington. Uh one of the big complaints from American leaders uh, and American intelligence folks and American media and think, tank, think tankers was why is Pakistan supporting the Afghan Taliban uh, sort of, you know, underhandedly while at the same time taking American money to fight the Afghan Taliban, right? This was a so-called double game. Uh, and for the best part of 15 or 20 years, this was a pretty constant refrain from Washington not to mention London. Uh, they were, you know, uh, from Bush to Obama to Trump and now to Biden. You know, sometimes there were carrots, sometimes there were sticks, sometimes there was a mix of both. Uh, sometimes there was a stern word in a newspaper column or something like that. But regardless, you know, there's been a great deal of consternation from, you know, places like Washington about Pakistan's stance towards the Taliban. Pakistan's answer, at least, for, at least the military's answer, or GHQ's answer, I should say, from, you know, from two thousand three to you know last year was we have to live with these folks not you you will leave one day we can't leave if we go all out against them they're gonna come all out against us we have enough security problems plus uh you know and this was what was often unsaid but uh you know the idea that maybe they can help Pakistan balance the threat of India. I'm not quite sure that logic was ever, uh, you know, drawn out, uh, but that's what they believed is that, oh, you know, a, a friendly Taliban government in Afghanistan can help us balance India. Uh, so, so you know, the, the argument for supporting the Taliban essentially was a security one, uh, or at least that's what it was portrayed as. Uh, so that's why it's very ironic to see what's actually happened. And this is why critics... Uh, of Pakistan's Taliban policy again for the best part of two decades, sort of have a you know an "I told you so" type of mentality here, which is uh, none of none of Pakistan's sort of great uh, dreams have been realized when it comes to the Taliban. So let's just take the most obvious one, which is. You know, the argument that once the Afghan Taliban come to power, that's going to help us sort out our own terrorism problem. Literally, the opposite has happened. In fact, the Pakistan Taliban have received a sanctuary now that the Afghan Taliban are uh, fully in power in Afghanistan. Uh, the, the Pakistan Taliban are way stronger today than they were five years ago or 10 years ago. Uh... And uh, Pakistan is sort of returning to its sort of dark ages of 2007 to 2013, when roughly 50,000 people died at the hands of the Taliban in Pakistan's most brutal war yet, uh, certainly since the 71 civil war. Um, And so that security argument that the Afghan Taliban are going to help us deal with problems like the Pakistan Taliban, literally the opposite is happening. Pakistan Taliban are stronger than they ever were. and so and we're seeing rises in the number of attacks we see we're seeing rises in the lethality of attacks and so pakistan is very much back to square one and is now sort of trying to chart out a counter terrorism policy back back to you know way we were in 2007 2008 um, and so the big disagreement between islamabad and the afghan taliban right now is how much help are you giving to deal with the pakistan taliban how much are you going to back off things like the durand line like that that was the other argument that, you know, if, you know, if people like Hamid Karzai are going to be in power uh, or Ashraf Ghani is going to be in power, we have to worry about the Durand line. But when the Afghan Taliban come to power, we don't have to worry about that. Well, even that was wrong. Uh, the Afghan Taliban is making as much noise about the Durand line as anybody else would. So I think, uh, you know, not to be too sort of crude about it, Pakistan's army has sort of fallen flat on its face uh, with regard to its Taliban strategy. But. Uh, and the people of Pakistan will pay. Uh, the people of uh, the Northwest of Pakistan especially will pay. Uh, we're seeing tens of thousands of people come out in sub-zero temperatures to protest uh, militancy, to protest the return of the Taliban. They're not being given attention in mainstream media channels. Uh, but those are the people who've lived through this. Those are the people who've lived through these daily, weekly attacks in in in, in mosques and markets and schools. Uh, and they are extremely furious with what the Pakistani military and the Pakistani state has done with respect to with respect to the Taliban but they're back and Pakistan has to fight them again
0: the US and Pakistan have had a relationship that goes back many decades but i think something distinct there was something distinct about it in the in the post 9/11 years and i think a lot of that relationship and you talked about the double game where you know the Pakistani government kind of kept its ties to extremist and insurgent groups, even though the United States was kind of giving it a huge bunch of aid and 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 other goods to uh, to cooperate on that level. And they sort of did and didn't. But now that Washington has withdrawn from Afghanistan, which I think was the main thing that made our Pakistan policy so imperative, how has the U.S.-Pakistan relationship changed, and how do you see it changing in the future?
1: I think it's obviously much narrower than it was in the immediate aftermath of nine eleven and the 10, 10 until until the sort of second Obama administration. Uh, it's much narrower. Um, you know, as you said, there was tens of billions of dollars flowing. You know, uh, over over that decade, uh, or decade and a half. Uh, that's obviously stopped. Uh, you know, the Washington, like I said, somewhere around the second Obama administration ran out of patience with, with Pakistan. Uh, Trump carried that forward, and Biden, you know Biden hasn't even uh, famously, as it's constantly repeated on Pakistani Twitter, Biden hasn't even given a phone call to Imran well, when Imran Khan was in power. He never even called him. Um, and so the relationship is very much uh, relatively weak compared to what it was, maybe arguably more realistic. One of the things that happened in that 10, 15 year period was a lot of grand, grandiose rhetoric. Uh, which was probably misplaced, given this was very much just a security relationship, and very much a security relationship in one conflict theater, which is Afghanistan, not a wider, uh, more sustaining security relationship, like, for example, with India or South Korea or Taiwan or Japan or Israel uh, or Colombia. Uh, so, so, um, so yeah, so that relationship is more, way narrower than it than it than it was. Uh, there are certain areas of cooperation, uh, you know, climate is one, you know, uh, uh, education, uh, technology, things like that, but very much low low intensity, you could argue, uh, sort of low value. And maybe that's the right way to go for U.S. and Pakistan. You know, these, these big promises and these big uh, denials of, of, you know, preferences and so on um i don't know i don't think that served either country really well i think these are two countries that should have a maybe more distant and more professional and if not entirely cold but more realistic appraisal of what unites them and what doesn't right so if all if all that unites them is tech policy or education policy or climate maybe that's fine maybe that's good enough uh but certainly pakistan needs the us's good graces for things like the imf uh it's probably not a coincidence that any time a major IMF negotiation is about to happen, someone—whether the army chief or the prime minister or some the foreign minister or the finance minister—somebody ends up in Washington DC a week or two before those IMF talks. That's probably not a coincidence. Uh, so Pakistan needs the US's help on 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 economic matters, uh, and arguably going forward with this with this huge Taliban problem and the Taliban's own. Uh, relationship with with actors like Al Qaeda, uh, maybe Pakistan and the US will, will cooperate on terrorism issues. But I think with a much clearer head and clear eyes and a clear sense of what's possible, what's not possible, rather than promising, you know, the you know heaven and earth, maybe more realistic. Uh, so there are areas of cooperation between the US and Pakistan to be sure. But I think comp- if you if you if your baseline is either the US Pakistan relationship in the 10-15 year period after 9 or your baseline is, for example, the U.S.-India relationship today, uh, it's night and day, right? So Pakistan is a much weaker ally, but I don't think that's the worst thing necessarily. I think there was something almost pathological, uh, like, you know, almost like you, you might need a relationship therapist or something uh, for those 10-15 years because it was a very, very intense and very almost passionate relationship that I think can serve either country well. And now that the temperature is a little bit lower, I think both will be better
0: off. That all sounds right to me. I think some people might hear that and suggest that there are more um, strategic, broader strategic reasons to do something with the US-Pakistan relationship, right? So, for example, in the context of its relationship with India, India is a more influential power, has a measure of independence, it's a less dysfunctional democracy. Uh, it's India' is also naturally butting up against China which is something the United States has its eye on and of course Pakistan and China have ties so can you just talk about that kind of triangle uh, of relationship there
1: yeah absolutely uh I think yeah I think this is very much a sort of you know a geopolitical alignment uh you know Pakistan's in China's corner uh India while not as much in the US's corner as Pakistan's and China's corner, certainly a lot closer to the US in the last thirty years than it was during the Cold War. For instance, you know everything from the Quad uh, to political ties. Uh, you know uh, Obama and Manmohan uh, Singh met a lot. Uh, Trump and Modi met a lot. Uh, you know constant, constant sort of uh, 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 relation relations between at the military level at the economic level. Uh, constant interaction at, uh, at those levels, I should say. Uh, so so that's a that's a burgeoning relationship and has been for three decades. Obviously, there are complications in the U.S.-India relationship. You know, uh, primarily right now it would be Russia and India's role in the Russia-Ukraine war, but more generally, India's sort of uh, stance or posture towards Russia. You know, everything from buying, continuing to buy Russian weapons and things like that. Right. So. uh I think there are a couple of issues to sort out of the U.S.-India relationship, but by and large, you know, these are, these are, if not full-blown allies, two very close states uh, that have, as you say, geopolitical reason to be allied, right, when they both have a common threat. So that's China. Uh, I do think that the U.S. sort of uh, going all in, essentially, on... India, which I can see why they did it, right? I mean, you as you say it, you you see the rise of China, you see a common threat. You say, okay, that's one reason to to ally with them. You mentioned the democracy angle. Uh, I would argue India is a pretty dysfunctional democracy right now, uh, but certainly at the at the dawn of this sort of new relationship, you could argue in the late nineties or early two thousands, India was a different type of democracy at that time, and so certainly the the parts of Washington DC that like talking about democracy, uh, I think those people really like hearing or really like seeing the type of ally that India could be. Uh and then obviously there was a sort of, you know, a good guy, bad guy, sort of Manichean uh, you know, uh, dichotomy between India and Pakistan, right? Where India's sort of the good guy, Pakistan's sort of the bad guy. And so uh so I think that there was also sort of some of that going along. So I can see there's all sorts of good reasons for Washington to ally with with India, right? Uh, but I do think the sort of going all in and sort of excusing or looking the other way as India's democracy has gone in a much more majority direction under Modi, uh, looking the other way on things like human rights violations, um, completely sort of. Uh, You know, swallowing wholesale the Indian narrative and preference for the U.S. to stay out of the Kashmir dispute. Uh, I'm not sure that clearly serves Indian interests. I'm not sure that serves American interests per se, uh, you know, but uh, overall, yes, the U.S. and India are much closer uh, than they were 30 years ago. Uh, Pakistan and China remain very close uh although even that relationship is relatively could be broadened, right, in terms of people to people contact, cultural ties, social ties, right? Or even a, a greater economic, uh a more broad based economic relationship rather than this sort of CPEC dominant relationship. Uh so so that those are really the alignments that we see. But you know, I don't think that, you know, people are expecting a quote unquote new Cold War in Asia. Uh, with these very sort of strict and rigid alignments that we saw in Europe, right, with the Warsaw Pact on one side and NATO on the other. Everybody knows which countries on which side and there's no confusion. And I don't think we're going to see that in Asia. Certainly in East Asia, uh, countries like Vietnam and Singapore are, are not super eager to, you know, uh, go all in on the U.S. or China. And I think that's broadly reflective of a of a larger sort of reluctance from from mid, middle powers in Asia to 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 not get uh, enmeshed in the sort of quote unquote new cold war. So I think India's stance is sort of emblematic of that, uh, and 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 that's where we're at right now. A
0: few years ago, you wrote a a paper um, for I think security studies, right? Um, on the reasons the United States invaded Iraq in 2003, you know, it's something that whole books have been written about, and there's really there's not that I can perceive is there a, a scholarly consensus on really what was the central motivation? Um, I'm actually going to let you do the setup for this. What was your what was your thesis in that paper?
1: Yeah, my thesis very simply was that the U.S. fought Iraq uh, to send a message to the rest of the world. Uh, and especially its so-called enemy or rival states, you know, the likes of North Korea or Iran or Libya. Uh, And the the message was one of sort of hegemony, right? The message was that we're not going to be messed with uh, and that we might have been hit 9-11, but we're still big and strong and... uh, no one's going to mess with us the words we are big and strong by the way literally rumsfeld said <laughs> uh in the week uh, in the week after 911 uh, in private commentary right that we have to attack someone else to show that we're big and strong these are rumsfeld's words not mine um yeah so i just th- want to
0: stop you there for a second actually yeah. because i have the quote here and i i wanted to read it because it's It's simultaneously, it's very Rumsfeldian in the sense that it's (laughs) like very subtle and intellectual. And on the other hand, it's like one of the most astonishingly stupid things I've ever (laughs) seen anyone say. So he said, quote, we need to bomb something else other than Afghanistan, that is to prove that we're, you know, big and strong and not going to be pushed around by these kinds of attacks. I can just imagine if they had articulated that as the public messaging behind the reason for the war instead of the false pretenses that they put forward.
1: Absolutely, and I mean, the ironic thing is, if he had actually said that on September twelfth, my guess is the American public would have gone along with him. <laughs> like, mm-hmm, you know. mm. uh, but it was one of those—if he had publicly said that on September twelfth. But it's one of those things where all of this stuff was in private, and as you say, the the, the public facing argument was WMD. Uh, and democracy and, uh, you know, human rights violations. And it was really, they were just throwing everything at the wall and saying whatever could stick. Uh, But yeah, my argument was very much, this was about sending a message, uh, a so-called demonstration effect. I call it, uh, in the the article, I call it performative war, right? Where you're fighting a war, not because you have a dispute with Iraq per se, but just to sort of, you know, as a prison yard analogy, You know, when a prisoner beats up somebody else in the prison, it's not because that other prisoner did anything to him, it's because he wants everyone else in the prison yard to respect and fear him. See, look how big and strong and tough I am. Uh, So I think that's why Iraq was chosen, and I think that's why that war happened.
0: How else do you think status and reputation and prestige affect U.S. foreign policy
1: today? That's a good question. I'll have to think about that. Yeah, I think there's sort of this constant, there's this sort of I think there's a self image, right, in Washington that we are we are the hegemon, we are we are we are quote unquote the leader of the free world. That language still pops in, although I think it's less less prevalent today than maybe twenty years ago. Uh but uh, yeah, the US sees itself as a very powerful actor uh the us sees itself as a, fulfilling a particular role in terms of uh global norms or or democracy uh or you know neutralizing countries like china the rise of china um and so so when when that status or when that honor is uh attacked as it was you know on 9/11 uh then I think it it generates a lot of sort of very strong imperatives, um, and in general, I think the the answer to your question I think is the U.S. does not take, uh, like, no, very well. Like the U.S. does not like other countries either standing up to it or even if they have reasonable disagreements, it just doesn't like hearing no because it takes that as an affront uh, to its social to its social standing, and so. In certain case like if you look at a country like Cuba, right, uh from a realist, you know, balance of power perspective, there's really no reason for anyone to really care about Cuba, right? Beyond a couple of people in Florida for, you know, idiosyncratic ideological reasons. Uh, but you know, the fact that like Cuba is like this hot potato where Obama wants to open up to it, but then Trump comes in and he says, No, we're gonna you know, and then go back like that comes from, I think, just the fact that here's a state here's this tiny state that says, no, we're not going to go along with your view of the world, and that's sort of offensive almost like wait, how can you say no to no to us? you're in our neighborhood uh and I think a lot of uh I mean, we talked about Iraq, but i mean if you if that i do, I don't want to reduce the u s Iran rivalry to one of status they are they are you know. Real security issues there, and so on. Uh, but I do think some of that comes from this idea that oh, how dare you? like how dare they be a big country that doesn't like go along with what we our worldview. Um, so, so I do think status and honor are sort of ongoing, ongoing um, concerns for the for the DC do, policy elite. Yeah. Do you think that maybe,
0: in addition to sort of incentivizing the launching of a war in 2003, concerns about status or reputation or American standing and exceptionalism delayed for many, many years, Uh, the US ability to end a war that it had lost a long time ago. I mean, did we stay in Afghanistan for a really long time just because of the humiliation and embarrassment of a withdrawal without a victory?
1: Arguably, yes. Yes, I think that that has a big part to do with it. In general, when it comes to honor and status, uh, in 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 international relations, security studies, uh, you know, honor and status are often the causes of war, and as you suggest, are often the the causes of war being prolonged. Uh, you know, what my colleague Mike Hunziker, for instance, co-authored a paper in security studies, in fact, on World War One and sort of opportunities to end that war in 1916 and why didn't end, and their argument is, you know, honor and status. Uh, and so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of, especially with these sort of long running wars, right? wars that run for years and years, in this case, decades. Uh, certainly, I think this idea that, wait, how can we lose there? Like, that doesn't make sense. We are so big and strong and we have an $800 billion defense budget and we have the world's biggest economy and they are so weak and they don't even have weapons. And, you know, so how, how is this possible? So I think there is something to be said for this side like this sort of refusal to refuse to believe like, what's actually happening um and, and it's sort of wrapped up in these self-assessments of like grandiosity and power uh, That said there were there were other you know there were other reasons for staying in Afghanistan such as terrorism and so on. but yeah I do think that that, that status had something to do with it. And I think in general like this whole period this sort of whole post 9/11 period both the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war, and as you're saying, sort of staying in Afghanistan that long, uh, had a lot to do with, like, that morning on 9-11. And and not in the sense of, like, oh, this is a security threat per se, but in the sense of, do you know who we are? Like, how dare you? You know, we are still the world's preeminent power. No one is going to mess with us. And don't think that you can mess with us. Uh, I think that's very much... uh, Even while the appetite to fight wars abroad has predictably declined in these last two decades, and I think the Trump uh, election, if not Trump himself, was sort of an indicator of this, that sort of underlying spirit almost of don't mess with us, I think is very much still prevalent. Uh, And I, I don't think it'll take much to spark it again. Uh, in, a, in a more sort of aggressive or nefarious direction.
0: In the paper you wrote, quote, there are circumstances under which states value fighting more than not fighting. And you say that this has implications for the long dominant bargaining model uh, of war. Can you explain all that?
1: Absolutely. So one of the, one of the classical papers in IR, uh, written almost 30 years ago now by, by James Farron, basically w- broke down war into a bargaining process and and the the point of departure for the fearon paper was why does war happen and his his basic intuition was war is in a sense irrational right his basic argument was two states two perfectly rational states you know should be able to given their differences in power given the balance of power uh should be able to reach some sort of agreement or some sort of bargain, some sort of negotiated bargain before war that will reflect the same balance of power that would dictate the war itself, right? So France and Germany, you know, instead of fighting over Alsace-Lorraine, whichever country is stronger, let's say by a two to one ratio, let's say Germany, you know, instead of getting a two to one ratio of Alsace-Lorraine after the war, why don't you just get it before the war and you save the cost of fighting, right? So that's the basic model. This has dominated IR for 30 years and essentially scholars have said this is this is why war happens, right? So if 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 war breaks if war happens, it's a result of a breakdown of of a bargaining process. And so that's where these so-called commitment problems and information problems and issue indivisibility come in. Right. The problem as I see it with that model, powerful as it is, valuable as it is, is it assumes that there's something at stake that you're fighting over, like, let's say, uh, you know, a piece of territory or a particular policy issue, you know, like, you know, Iran's nuclear deal or something, right, where there's something at stake and you're fighting over that something. And so so the the fear on intuition is, well, just divide that something peacefully instead of dividing it in a war-prone way. But where I came at this from is maybe there's a value in fighting in and of itself. Right. So the fear on model is there's value only in the thing in that box that you're fighting over, whether it's territory or whatever. And so then the the fighting is the way you get it. But the fighting is not the valuable thing itself. Fighting is the means to get the valuable thing. Whereas for me, fighting is the valuable thing itself because it shows that you're big and strong. If you win, that is, <laughs> at least that's the argument. That's the theory is that if we show we're big and strong, if we, if we fight, then we can show we're big and strong and then no one will mess with us. And so so my big sort of uh, disagreement with that model or sort of pushback to that model is, yeah, it works a lot of the time, but it doesn't work all of the time. And it doesn't work in those cases where the fighting itself has value over and above the thing that you're quote, unquote, fighting over. So in this case, you know, you might say, well, the WMD, for instance, and we leave aside, you know, all the, all the problems of that argument. But conceivably, you could argue, well, you know, was WMD the thing that they were fighting over? And I would say no, because they wanted a fight, regardless whether it was WMD or not WMD. They, they just wanted a reason. And they would have come up with a reason. And so the fair on bargaining model can't grapple with that. Because in the fear on bargaining model, war is, the fact that war happens is almost a failure of the bargaining process. Like something went wrong. Whereas for me, no, that's exactly what they wanted. That's what they intended. So, so that's really where the departure between my argument and, and people like Fioran.
0: SN But thank you very much for joining us today.